Hello, everyone. Look, just before we get to this week's podcast, I wanted to say thank you for your support. Last weekend, my gig for Casa Susie to raise money for my friends Susie and Furamin in Trabadello. They own a little albergue there. They're doing it tough because they haven't had any guests this year and they need some desperately need some work done on the house. So we did a little gig for them and we raised lots and lots of money. So I wanted to say thank you just before we get to this week's podcast. And look, the fact is they could always do with more. So if you are inclined to donate some money to them, save Casa Susie Fund. Easy as that. Just Google it. Save Casa Susie Fund. And just on the podcast, this is my 200th. And I was going to do something with lots of bells and whistles. And then in the meantime, while I was writing and and editing, I managed to catch Vivek Basson. And I couldn't think of a better podcast to mark 200, quite frankly. This is absolutely magic. Look, enough from me. Let's get to this week's podcast. Thanks again. Buen Camino. Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and I really appreciate your company. This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, a series of ancient, spiritual, and mystical pilgrimages across Europe. Camino de Santiago translates as the way of St. James. The story goes, Christ's apostle St. James walked the path and was buried in northwest Spain after he was martyred in the years after Jesus Christ's crucifixion. A majestic cathedral towers over the town square of the city of Santiago de Compostela, St. James under a field of stars. The remains of St. James are interred in a silver casket beneath the cathedral. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims make their way to Santiago each year via a series of pilgrimages called Caminos. People say the Camino calls you. It will let you know when you're ready to walk your pilgrimage. Others say something led them to the Camino, almost like a spiritual or energised drawing to the way. It doesn't matter if you're not a long-distance walker or particularly adventurous, the Camino will care for you. It doesn't matter if you walk alone or if you arrive with others and choose to be alone, the Camino will care for you. It doesn't matter if you have to travel on a tight budget, the Camino will care for you. The American author and poet William Arthur Ward said once, Three keys to more abundant living. Caring about others, daring for others, and sharing with others. And he also said, A warm smile is the universal language of kindness. Well, you'll find lots of sharing and caring, lots of smiling and kindness, and a little daring on the Camino de Santiago. Take the leap. Enjoy the journey. My guest this week is Vivek Basson. He grew up in India, but now spends his time divided between India and Sweden. He's on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. And thank you for, for your fantastic introduction. It's, it, was, it was so beautiful the way you expressed the Camino. And I'm ready and stand by here to speak to you and <laughs> just discuss whatever you have in mind. My friend Melanie Shadlich recommended you to me. She said, Vivek is one of the nicest, most respectful, open-minded, smart and versatile people I ever met. 
And I thought, <laughs> there's someone I want to talk to. And now that's a very nice thing to say about someone, isn't it? I am totally flattered. I'm blessed. She's a wonderful young lady, Melanie, and we've been in touch now for the last two years. And she is uh, she's a fantastic person. I, I, I've met her a few times on the uh, Camino Frances. And uh, after that, we've got a very good bond. We've uh, we sort of exchanged voice messages and uh, we've had one video call or a Skype. But it's fantastic. She's 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 a brilliant young girl. And and I wish you all the very best. Here, here is a sea captain, an Indian sea captain who lives part of his life in Sweden. Now, I'm going to go into your very, uh, very and varied life experiences later in the interview. But let's just start with how you found yourself on the Camino de Santiago. How did you end up there? Well, Dan, um, quite frankly, you know, I am, as you very correctly mentioned, I'm an Indian sea captain, uh, born and brought up all my life. Uh, uh, I was born in Simla, which is uh, up in Himachal Pradesh, which is uh, part of the Himalaya range, 2,500 meters above the sea. I was born there. I went to boarding school, which was Bishop Cotton School, affiliated to Marlborough and Rugby. And uh, I started out, I went out to sea as a marine cadet, and I saw the world, uh, I lived and traveled and I worked my way, even went to Australia, of course, and I worked my way from a cadet, became a second officer and a chief officer, and finally a captain commanding my own ship. And then I thought, you know, when I when I finally got a shore job in Costa Rica, which was a brilliant country, I loved it. And then as managing director in London with Dole Fresh Fruit, um, I, my, my sort of seagoing career or my maritime career came to an end in 2012, though I did do a lot of see inspections after that for different uh, shipping companies. But there was something missing. And uh, although India has got so many pilgrimages, there was something about this. And I must mention that my wife read about it first. And uh, I'd been to Spain so many times by ship. I'd covered all the ports generally, but I'd never been right to Spain. And when I read about the Camino, it was there was this, this strong attachment that I got and uh, when I started discussing it with people, they said, you know, Vivek, look at your age. You're an old guy. You're 63 years old or something like that. How can you do it? And the more they sort of discouraged me, the more, the more enthused I got. And I spoke to my mom and I said, mom, she's uh, now in India. God bless her. She's still under lockdown with the pandemic. And she said, you know, son, you're a Hindu. What's the need for you to go on this pilgrimage? And I said, mom, it's, it's not really from the very religious point of view, but I just want to remind you, mom, you sent me to boarding school at the age of five. This was an English Protestant school and we went to chapel every day. And from the age of five to the age of 15, I've been to chapel 4,000 times in my life. And I even read, in the, read the Holy Bible now as part of the school choir. So I want to do this. And it just happened. I, I worked it out and uh, I went, in fact, I was walking in, darkness in that sense when I left Sweden I wasn't sure what's going to be what's going to how I'm going to move on but I just bought a ticket and I flew across to to Madrid and I caught a bus and I got on the trail and I started from uh, from Lyon and this was in 2018 and every step of the way I can only thank everybody around me the universe my family my friends and that fantastic Camino so I started that and that's how I actually went there I was so and it there was this power that was calling me there. I knew that I had to go and I had to do it. 
How, you mentioned that you were you were born and raised in the Himalayas. How or how or why does a boy in the Himalayas end up in the ocean? <laughs> That's a very good question, Dad. Well, it was my it was my esteemed father. He was a. Uh, he was when when India was was not divided. It was part of well, Pakistan and India. My dad grew up in uh, in Lahore. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going back. He's no more now, and uh, and he definitely looks after me from wherever he is. Uh, he uh, was very fascinated for some reason uh, in this little village in Lahore. People talked about ships and oceans and going out and seeing the whole world. He'd never seen water besides uh, probably rainwater and a little stream or a river flowing there. And he took the plunge and he joined and he applied for a very famous training ship in Bombay. It was called, it was actually a troop carrier from England called the steamship Dufferin, D-U-F-F-E-R-I-N. It was the fastest steamship in the world when she was, uh, when, when she was in active service. She was a troop carrier as well. And finally, when, when the British came to India, they, they wanted to have uh, set up a maritime training academy. And they put the ship in. They anchored her off the gateway of India in Bombay. And my father applied, and he got the job, or he got the posting as, uh, as, a, as an apprentice or a deck cadet. So when he joined that ship and he worked his way up, he then took a seagoing career and became a captain. And then he became a pilot on the Hooghly River, which is one of the most treacherous rivers in the world. Uh, that is from, uh, it's part of the Sundarbans Delta and the Ganges River. So he was piloting ships up and down that river. And we were up in boarding school nine months a year from the age of five. But every time I came back, I was fascinated by my dad's job. Yeah. And I said, Dad, yeah. you know, this is great. And he said, you know what? I'm not spending all that money sending you to this very exclusive boarding school. I should have sent you to some little little government school around the corner. I said, no, Dad, I look at you. I look at the way you are. You're a worldly man. You've seen the world. And I just want to step into your shoes. And he kept discouraging me. That's what I did. I jumped into his shoes and I joined uh, the Merchant Marine at the age of 16 um, in 1971. So after school, I did one year in college at St. Xavier's in Calcutta. I was doing a Bachelor of Commerce, but that didn't really interest me. I was fascinated by by the sea and all what I would get with that. It was quite a, quite a journey from the Himalayas to Calcutta and then on ships. And you've visited now more than 120 <laughs> countries in your career, your global travels. I wonder, could I ask you, Vivek, what's one thing we all share, the entire globe, that you've seen? I think what is what I've what I've learned, what I've experienced, and what I try my best to give back is that uh, it's it's mankind, it's it's us human beings. Uh, you might be from any nationality, you might have any color, caste, creed, which is also terrible to say that you're white or you're black or you're brown, but we're all we're all one in that sense, and that's what the Camino gave me. I met the most incredible people on that Camino. It was it was. I said I told my family. I'm going to walk alone. But when I walked that path, I know I did read somewhere in one of uh, in some write-up that there was a, a young lady from uh, from from the states, and she wanted and she wanted to walk it all alone without saying a word. But when I walked it, I wasn't like running out and meeting people. But I I met the most beautiful people. 
Some caught up with me, some I caught up with, some walked with me, some went ahead of me, some fell behind, but I met them all along. And that's what the great part is about having lived, worked and traveled through 120 countries in the Camino is I've met the most wonderful people. And when you talk and when you sit down, like right at this moment, Dan, we've got this fantastic connect. And this is what the Camino gave me. It is, it is such an amazing journey. And I met the most remarkable people and we all had, there was nothing there that was uncommon. It was untoward. Fine, you've had your careers in life and you've been struggling and you've been running around and competing in the rat race. But when you get on that Camino and you meet the people, we're all, we're just beautiful people, all of us. It was, it was, it was such a beautiful experience. And even today, I could be on the golf course here in Karlstad. Swedes are very reserved people. When I'm on the golf course this summer, because of the pandemic, I've played about 80 rounds of golf. And because of the community, I walked 1,800 kilometers, uh, including my golf, since the 20th of March when I flew back from Delhi. And I talked to everybody um, on the golf course. I asked them, how are they? What are they all about? What have they been doing? And, and I just want to get involved with them, but not, I don't try to be overbearing, but it's just a great feeling because there's so much to learn and see from, from other human beings. What's one thing we could all do to make the world a smaller place? You know, it's, uh, I think communication is very important. We have to communicate with everybody. I come from India and I see the you know, disparity there, the overpopulation, the pollution which they're going through right now in the winter. They've just had the festival of Diwali. The farmers have got no other source, so they're burning all the stubble. We have to communicate, and there's got to be mass communication. Your podcast is something amazing, and I'm sure hundreds and thousands of people listen to it. But we've got to get down to grassroots level. I also do work for a charity in India called the Salam Balak Trust. There was a movie called Salam Balak, and we look after 6,000 destitute young girls in India who are from broke-away homes, who are lost, some are kidnapped, some are exploited. But we have to make sure is that there has to be a big voice. And I can't find that, that big voice. It's your voice, Dan. It's my voice. It's Melanie. It's the others around. And you just have to give back. And, uh, you know, like my grandmother, she's no more. She was the one who was my local guardian in Simla. And she always told me, you know, I wish a 24-hour day was a 100-hour day so I could give back. She used to go and help the poor. She used to try to teach them hygiene, educate them pay money for their education. She used to go to the temples around and she was an artist. So she used to, you know, the number of gods we have in India. So she used to go to the temples and she used to look after the, all these, uh, the different gods, the Ganesha and the Lakshmi and the Parvati and the Krishna. And she used to dress them up. Uh, and So it's just, we have to, we, we are all just one small little speck in the ocean. And I know how large these oceans are. We've got three fourths of the planet is covered by water. But if you can do your little bit, but it's got to spread out and people and you've got to impact people like you're doing, Dan. That's the only way that we have to all come together and, and say that, you know, we've got to live in peace and harmony. There should be no animosity. There should be no jealousy. There should be no backstabbing. There should be everybody should live happily, which is, of course, it's very good to say it in a verbal manner. But how do we do it practically? But that's what I would love is that we could all just enjoy our lives and be happy with what we've got. 
And that's something that we are, we are lacking. We are deep into our materialistic values. We're going here and there. But the Camino, in fact, teaches us, hey, as just as you said in your introduction, you don't need too much. I, in fact, stopped in one Camino, uh, in one albergue. I forget the name now. This is on my, on my last run. And I was walking with this lovely chap I met from, from Granada. In fact, his name is Antonio. I even went to meet him in the month of January this year. Antonio and Azela, and we went into this into this albergue. And you know what it said there when, when we were having dinner, they invited us for dinner. There was a box there. It was the box for, you know, it's for a donation, donativo. But it also said, put whatever you want inside. But if you don't have, you can also put your hand and take some out for yourself. That really, I, I had tears in my eyes, Dan. I was so touched by this action or this gesture from the person who was running this albergue. I'm fascinated by your philosophy. Melanie tells me you're an etiquette trainer, a radio broadcaster, as well as an amateur actor, a writer, a poet, a thinker, and a philosopher. So now look, (laughs) perhaps we ought to start with etiquette trainer. Firstly, what is an etiquette trainer? How on earth did that come about? Well, Dan, you know, when I was sailing as a captain and I, I was sailing with so many different nationalities and I think uh, God bless my parents that they sent me to a very fine English public school called Bishop Cotton School, which is the oldest public school in Asia, founded in 1859, which is in Simla, which is 2,500 meters above sea level. So from there... You know, when, when you're a young boy, you're you're running around and you've got your you're doing whatever, your shirt's coming out of your of your shorts or whatever. But as time goes by, I went out to sea, and a lot of my other batchmates, they I thought that they were very narrow-minded. I won't say narrow-minded, but they were like a frog in a well. They said, Hey, Vivek, you're wasting your time. You know, I'm here to make my money and save it and then go back to India. And I said, No, man, you know what? I would like to get a ship, which is possibly like a junk that will go into a port and it'll stay for two weeks or three weeks or a month and I can explore the city and meet people. So as my seagoing career went, I sort of kept refining myself. I'm trying to, to get the best from people. I also got a lot of negative negativity from a lot of people, but you know, I thought about them and I wished them well and I moved on. And then I also, because of Probably it was because of my mannerisms or the way of my body language. And I, I also got a job on, on Royal Caribbean Line. In, in, this was a ship called the Sapphire Seas that was sailing, but it was a very short stint between Port Everglades and the Bahamas. And there again, I was working with 75, 18 nationalities, a few passengers because that voyage didn't last for too long. That's another story. So when I, when I came ashore and I was in England for a while and everybody used to comment on, Vivek, you, you, this, this, the way you dress, the way you sort of, Hold yourself. I was the managing director, so I had to be a representative of Dole Fresh Fruit. And as time went by, I thought, you know what? Every time I go to India, starting from the time I land uh, at the immigration, you know, the guy, he's, he's cold, he's, he's, he's so nonchalant, he's not even looking at you. And I thought, is this the first impression that people are going to get of, of, of India? And then you walk out on the streets, and then you walk out. And then I said, you know what? I'm trying to be my best. I'm on my best behavior all along. I wish everybody, hello, how are you? 
uh, it's not superfluous. It's genuinely when you ask somebody how you are, it's not some, an American will say not too bad, pretty good. But I say, is, I want to find out how the person is. And as time progressed, I said, you know what, I've got to give back. And that's what I started. I started a small company in India called Sharper Edge India. So I thought, Indians, you know, you've got to become sharper edge. You've got to have that cutting edge. Indians, we are very good in theoretical knowledge. I'm sure in Australia, you've got many Indians there. They're very good in IT. They're all sort of behind the scenes. I said, listen, guys, come up. Let's go up in the front. And Bollywood, that is a negative element in India. I know it's, it's very popular, but it's a handful of actors. There's nepotism. And everybody is just looking at them as idols. I said, they are not the right people to look up to. You, you are special by yourselves. And that's what I did. I started going out. And of course, one of my biggest clients now is the ITC Hotels, which is a luxury chain. And they have a huge school of hospitality, but they still want Vivek to come in for the finishing school. So that's what I do is I go in and I talk to them. And it's, it's a very active in, it's a very interactive session where I teach them how to walk, how to talk, how to dress, how to approach. I even go live in, in the hotel and I talk to talk to hotel guests and some of them mistake me to be the general manager. That's one side. Then I also go to the villages and I sort of come down to their level and I tell them and I talk to them uh, what is important about respecting women in India. The villages still, there is that still that that concept there that a man is is above all and a woman is... It's just to have babies and that's it. And so I do that, I do that. I go and mentor all the boys in my school. I've done that for fashion houses. And it's called, as I said, Sharper Edge India. And uh, I'm not very active in that sense is that uh, people say you should expand, but somehow I've not found, found the right person who I could train up. So it's like on and off. Whenever I'm in India, uh, I get a call, I go and I have two, three, two, three day sessions and I've done it at the Sheraton Hotel at the Marriott and some of the others. And of course, at my Bishop Cotton School, some other very good schools. I've also done a one-to-one -one with a young boy um, who was from my school. He insisted, he told his dad, no, I want to come under Captain Vivek's tutelage. He landed up with his bags in Delhi. He spent three, four days with me and he was very successful. He went to Ecuador. I told him to go to Ecuador. His parents were not happy about it. I said, go, you learn the language. Made lots of friends, girlfriends, I guess. He's back in India. So it's just a, a way of giving back. And I think uh, my soft skills and etiquette uh, is something that is very much needed, at least in a country like India. In fact, even everywhere in the world. You, you, if you call up somebody and they pick up the phone, everybody just says hello. And I just say, you know, I'm, I'm calling you. You're, you're a large multinational company. You're a hotel. And all you say is hello. You've got to say, hey, good morning. Welcome to the Taj Bengal. Uh, how may I help you? Something like that. So it's all, these are very small things which I think we sort of take for granted. But this is very important. And I think the world has got to have more etiquette uh, in, in every workplace. I think the simple word right. to sum it up is courtesy. Very much, very much. Courtesy is, of course, that is, that comes right in, that's ahead of everything else. Mm. It's how you express now in today's world with a pandemic, you can't shake hands anymore. It's this elbow thing. But in India, what's the, what's the traditional greeting? It's a namaste, which is becoming very popular because you're not really making body contact with anyone, yeah. but you're closing your hands in respect. Yeah, a simple courtesy can go a long way. Hey, Vivek, tell us about you and the radio. I love radio. Tell us about how you came to be and 
what you came to be as a radio broadcaster. Well, Dad, I love ACDC. I love Midnight Oil. <laughs> I love Wolf Mother. I'm, I'm in a hard rock, actually, a little bit of heavy metal. But again, it all started with Bishop Cotton because we had some of my, my, my friends or my pals they used to come down from England and they used to buy these Beatle records. And I used to love them. You know, they were the 45s and the 78s and the, and the LPs. And, uh, and it started with the Beatles. But then uh, there was a radio station uh, in Calcutta and they started playing, and this is in the 70s, they started playing Led Zeppelin and they started playing The Who. And they started playing Jimi Hendrix and uh, Def Leppard and, and ACDC and Midnight Oil. I think that guy's become a politician, right? The, that guy, the, I remember the song, Beds Are Burning. I still, I still listen to that rock station here. So I was, and that's, in fact, with my first salary, which I got when I sailed out as a cadet, was $7, Dan. And I, the first port of call was Las Palmas in Spain. And I went to shore. And there are two things I wanted to buy. Uh, a pair of Levi's jeans and an album of Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy. So I sort of got into rock in such a big way. I just love, and some of the new bands, I go, you know, I'm sorry, but some of this pop and rap and, you know, I, I, sh I shouldn't be apologizing. I know there's, there's a huge audience for that and rock is probably still trying to, again, emerge from the, from the ashes, let's put it that way. But, so as this went on and I started, I used to tune in every port I went to, I used to tune into a, a station in New York. In fact, there is a, a link I can send you. It's, it's called uh, World Radio and, and on your mobile, you can, you can tune into any radio station. It's the whole world and it's got little green spots and you can tune into one and you'll get rock or you'll get, of course, I do like salsa and merengue because I used to dance that when I was in Costa Rica. But the emphasis was, and I heard Deep Purple Life you know, it's like for a for an Indian, you've got to go to the four different points of India before you die. And these are the four very religious temples. For me, what I've got to do is I've got to do the four religious points of rock. I've done Deep Purple in life. Uh, I've not done Led Zeppelin, unfortunately. I've done The Who. And, uh, and, I've, and I've done Def Leppard as well. But these bands, you know, the bands which came out of England, Australia, and of course... USA uh, came on, uh, was something amazing. And I still, uh, you know, I, I, I call it this year, by the way, was our 50th anniversary of passing out from Bishop Cotton School. I should have gone back to India and celebrated, and, uh, but, but that didn't happen. But when I was in England, I said, you know what, I've got to become a radio presenter. So I got in touch with it, with, with an organization, and I trained at Hammersmith in London, and I got my radio presenter's license. And then I did two programs. Uh, I wasn't that active, but I, I, I made a disc where I interviewed two ladies from, uh, from India who live in Stockholm and the trials and tribulations that they experienced when they first came to Sweden. And in between, I put in some, some Spanish rock. There's a band from Argentina called Rata Blanca. And then I put in, of course, Robert Plant, uh, if I was a carpenter. I like soft rock as well. But it was, and then uh, Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me. And then I did another session where I put in more like Van Halen and other things. So, and that's what I did. And I played that in India when we had our, uh, our different jubilees uh, uh, in India. One of the boys from Richard Cotton, uh, they have a radio station out of India today. So I went live and we interviewed everybody coming in and I was playing a lot of hard rock. So that's what I was as part of that scene. And I still am very much. But 
I, I haven't been doing that much of radio presenting. I was thinking of probably doing that, uh, uh, setting up an internet radio, but life's just passing by, Dan. Life's never passing you by, I don't think, <laughs> somehow. But I saw, I saw you on your, playing your beautiful guitar on the Camino. Oh, and yeah. In fact, I was going to ask you when you started that song, you were at Samos when you came out of that albergue and I stayed there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, underneath the, the monastery in Samos. Yeah, that's right. That's a and big... it was an Aussie. It was an Aussie. It was an Aussie. You told me to go there. I forget his name. This guy. He, yeah. he says, when you're going to Tricastella, you make a left. Like what you say in shipping, he says, you turn to port. You don't go to starboard, he told me. I said, <laughs> okay. He said, and you walk through that forest, which was sort of burnt out. And I and from the top, you look down at the monastery. Yeah. And in fact, Melanie was also there. Though she was staying in another place. Mm. I stayed there because I love that place. Yeah. And well, the guy with George well, was a chap called Jesus. Jesus. I, I remember that. That's exactly right, Jesus. And uh, across the street, there is a bar there. Now, if you that's don't, that's right. That's it, where you normally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's uh, where Melanie was staying somewhere yeah, there. That's right. And uh, across the street, there is a bar, and he has a fantastic record collection there. Of, yes, of, yes, of, I of, remember. Of, of, yeah, and you and he invites you to pick an album and put it on the on the turntable and play a record or two um, on the record player on the bar, which is just absolutely fantastic. Now, look, I've just got to say to my listeners, Vivek, um, throughout while, while you're talking, I'm laughing and cheering and high fiving myself for hearing what you're saying. But if it goes to air, it cuts you off. So I'm, I'm, I have because we're talking via Zoom. I have to turn my microphone off. So everyone's wondering why is Dan not saying anything? But that's why because normally they would hear me laughing and cheering in the background when you're talking about Midnight Oil and Led Zeppelin and 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 Def Leppard and all of those things. And and that's just the quirks of talking via Zoom. I can't talk while you're talking; otherwise, it backfires. But look, let's let's go on with with the with the next stage of of Melanie's recommendation and that was that you're a writer a thinker a poet a philosopher I, I wonder how much of that Vivek comes from spending long periods at sea you're very right it's the it's uh, a lot of it has got to do with the loneliness you know uh, I've, I've, re- I've written about 60 different uh, missives or articles and my we've got a website of Bishop Cotton School and I'll send you the link and uh and I and I I was I was good in in, in the English language. I was uh, a good actor in school, and uh, of course we can come to that later. But I I, I did uh, start writing very early, and I started writing poems. And I think it a lot of it uh, has got to do with me being uh, well. Everybody is lonely in that sense. There are people around you, and there could be a lot of uh, hullabaloo, uh, and you're standing in this melee. But you know inside. Uh, I, for some reason, um, maybe, but on the other hand, you know, it, it's a very contradictory way of saying it is that my parents sent me away to Bishop Cotton School at the age of five because I was falling sick in Calcutta with the extreme heat. It was 45 degrees and they and they told my mom, this boy is not going to live. He won't survive here. You've got to send him to cooler climes. And they sent me up to Simla and I was five years old and I'm looking at my grandson here, Jacob. You know, he's four and a half, five, and I and I joke with my with my daughter and my son also about the fact is that uh, you know but you should send Jacob to Bishop Gordon School, and my daughter gives me a hard stare. But uh, I think it had to do with that. 
being by myself, and I think a lot, I talk a lot, and I said, let's put it down on paper. So that's what it was. I, I, I write a lot of emotional things, a lot of people I met along the way. Um, and, um, and I express that even when I talk, uh, when I have my soft skills and etiquette courses. So there's a lot I've written. In fact, one of the ones, one, one article I wrote was about this lady uh, who was my neighbor in England in Weybridge. And she was 100 years old, Miss Mari Bono. And uh, I, of course, uh, well, my good upbringing in Bishop Cotton School, I used to go to the office, I used to come down and say, good morning, Miss Bono, get into my car and drive to the office and come back in the evening. And she was like four feet and, and a fact paper tall. That's what they say. I think that's what they say it in England. And uh, every time she came back, she's looking at me from a distance. And one day she says, young man, come right here. Well, I was young those days. I think I was in my 40s. I said, yes, Miss Mary Bonner, how, how may I help you? She says, where are you from? And I said, uh, I'm from India, ma'am. Ah, India, she said, okay. Are you from Simla? And I wondered, how, how did she know that? And I said, yes, ma'am, I'm from Simla. She says, did you go to Bishop Cotton School? And that really got me worried. Has this lady been going up to my flat and opening it up and sort of checking out? No, she says, there was something about you because I was born in Simla as well, she said. And I studied in, uh, in the sister school called Tara Hall. So can you imagine, Dan, is that, and I wrote about her, just, of course, I, I, I wrote about her and many others, but this was amazing. So I said I had to put this down on paper. The other one I wrote lately was about the awful soap they used to give me in Bishop Cotton School, and we could, and it was cold water. And then I had the stove on board who came on board out of Cartagena in Colombia, and I had to bring him back to this, back to Colombia, and he was on board, and he wanted head and shoulder shampoo, and he wanted luggage. So I had to connect. Everything is connected with Bishop Cotton School in the end and with my school chapel. So uh, all my articles or my poems are all sort of related to that. And I think it's got to do with my loneliness. Uh, um, uh, I am an extrovert. On the other hand, I love to act. But for some reason, uh, there is something in, inside me which, which sort of keeps me very quiet and deeply emotional. I read the piece you keep talking about Bishop Cotton School and it, it, it's clear it's had an enormous impact on your life, an enormous impact on your life. And I read the piece that you wrote for the old Cottonians, your old school's website, about your Camino experience. And you started by saying, Galicia, an autonomous community in Spain's northwest, is a verdant region with an Atlantic coastline. And I, I wondered, I suspect a coastline means a great deal to a sea captain, does it? Very much so. You know, I mean, in the old days, before, uh, before satellite navigation, in fact, when I was at sea, I used to use the sextant and everything, and you're looking forward to, to making land. And those days when I started sailing, ships were not that fast. I mean, uh, we had the SS Dufferin, as my father was on, which, which uh, I believe was up to 35 knots. But... We were doing, you know, allegedly 11 knots, 8 knots. It used to take uh, those days, and the Suez Canal was closed after the Six-Day War, and I remember making a trip of 55 days from Odessa and the Black Sea nonstop. I think we did stop in Las Bahamas to bunker, but that was at Anchorage, so we never got ashore. And then we sailed via the Cape of Good Hope and worked our way to Bombay. And just as we got to Bombay, we got orders that the it's congestion in the port, 
So I turned around and sailed south to uh, Colombo in Sri Lanka. And it was like 55 days of torture. I was this young boy. I was 17, 18 years old. And I'm looking forward to coming ashore. So it's always, it's the coastline. And I think that that's what it is. It's land, ahoy, whatever you might say in the golden yeah. days. You're coming back home. You're stepping on terra firma. You've got, you've got the beach. You've got the sea. You've got the seagulls. You've got the palm trees. Uh, and I think that's what it is. I had to add on the Atlantic Ocean. I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but whether, uh, but I believe that is it, right? Galicia does does it does touch the Atlantic. It does, and uh, and I just um, I connected it with that, so it was wonderful when I went to Finisterre and Murcia as well. Mm. Yeah, you say in the piece in the Old Cottonians, um, you say you left Sweden for the Camino, and I'll quote you here, Vivek, with some anxiety, apprehension, and a little confused from both family and my own inner voice. What was Correct. What was that inner voice telling you? Well, the inner voice was, was actually telling me, um, you know, now you've taken the step. Are you sure you really want to do it? But you don't want to do it. You still have time to get back on the train in Stockholm. And I just kept walking ahead. I wasn't stopping. But there was this voice telling me that, you know, I think everybody has that apprehension of doing anything for the first time. Uh, so um, this was in my mind. But I was all set. I had my rucksack. I had my. I bought my. I bought my Merrill Moabs, and um, and I said no, I'm going. But this inner voice was was sort of testing. My, my sort of determination and my strength. But, it, but I finally overcame that because uh, the minute I got on the Camino and I started walking, the very next day, I, I felt this, I belong here. Mm. So that inner voice was something that I believe was testing me, uh, saying, you know, it was, there's some force saying, you know, you don't have to do it. Why are you doing it? Go on, go back, relax, take it easy. Um, this... Why do you want to go and break your legs or your knees or have blisters on your feet? <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so it, it, it worked out well, and I'm so happy. So, Dan, I, I was going to do it this year as well between uh, Lisboa. I was doing the Portuguese, but very upset that I couldn't go. I was wanting to do the whole length from, from Lisboa to Santiago, but that didn't happen. So the inner voice was something that I... I sort of overcame that inner voice. We always have an inner voice telling us, yes, no, why, what, when, no, things like that. You say you, uh, you received your credential in Leon, uh, a passport, as, as you put it, um, to trudge, this is your words, to trudge, stomp, heave, and surge your body towards Santiago de Compostela. You make it sound so romantic, Vivek. <laughs> well, I tell you, uh, I, do you remember that stretch, uh, Dan, from uh, before you came to, um, uh, um, what is the name of that place? Uh, it was three days after. The, after Leon, you, you go to those other two ports, and then you came to Rabanel del Camino, and from Rabanel del Camino, Marlena Seca. Yes. Did you, do you remember that stretch from Rabanel? I stayed with that English couple, by the way, on the left they had this lovely little place and they served us tea at three o'clock or something at four o'clock with biscuits. Uh, uh, and um, Molinen, uh, it was Molina Seca. That was a tough one. 
Do you remember that, Brian? Yeah, the walk down the hill. The walk down the hill into Melinaseka is one of the most difficult parts, I think, anyway, of the Camino. I- yeah, and my knees were sort of giving back, but of course, uh, uh, that was one. And but uh, yeah, we had to trudge, we had to drop, we had to slide. <laughs> I was very lucky the first night when I was staying at the albergue. I met a Frenchman, and he said, "You know what? I'm stopping." And I, and he had these walking sticks. I said, "What do you need these walking sticks for?" Ramon, you need them because, you know, you might fall down. I said, yeah, but, you know, I'm a fit guy. You may be fit or not fit. It doesn't matter. You must go and get yourself a pair of sticks. And it was like nine o'clock at night and somehow there was some shop open and uh, was it Leon where and I went and I got my walking sticks. And they were the shock absorber type. I'm not sure whether using you were using them because you were walking with your guitar. So did you have your sticks as well? I did. And I... And I- yeah, I swear by them now. I swear by them. I mean, people do have, you know, they buy that that big one, one big uh, um, uh, staff, like, you know, which is also being sold to sort of really uh, uh, sort of merge with the old pilgrims who walk. But that one wooden staff is not enough. You need both. And I know that's modern way of walking, but, uh, and I can understand and I can feel for those pilgrims how they must have been struggling and how they reached Samos, that monastery where, uh, that that monk there, uh, he used to say, is that it, it, they used to make medicines out of the local herbs and treat these pilgrims, and they were most of them were probably walking bare, barefoot at that time. So um, no, but it, walking is what has got me now. Although I walked a lot in the mountains in Simla, but after after the Camino, I'm just never going to stop walking. I mean, I've walked eighteen hundred kilometers uh, in the last eight months here in Sweden, and. Uh, of course, you've got to be careful about your knees and, and your feet. Of course, those are the most important things. But, uh, yeah, that's how it was. And I loved – it was really nice what I wrote later because it was all sitting in my mind and I had to put it on paper, and that's what I did. I want to read a piece from um, that article in the Old Cottonians, and I'm going to put it on the a link – to the article when I post the podcast, you said, there are many ways to lead you to the creator. Some indulge in studies of the divine. Others wait to be preached. Many sit on the banks of the Ganges while some on the Himalayan peaks, communicating with powerful enchants and prayers and telepathy. Many prostrate along the road full length and repeat this from toe to hair a million times towards their true belief. And there are some like me, a trickling faith, a hundred temples over 3,000 chapel prayers at the school, and never I got it. The path from Leon to Astorga and the walk at 7.10 this morning, I followed the yellow shell, the pilgrim with his staff bent forward, determined, and I followed the road and only once glanced back at the spires of the cathedral at Astorga. I never looked back, but yet my psyche was not fully impressed with my faith nor was I sure of the end. As someone told me, never venture, never win. But is this really a win? A flood of memories and then a stillness. And when I look back again, all I saw was the sky turned red and the sun lifting upwards. Take us through that day, Vivek. Well, you you read it so beautifully, Dan. (laughs) You really read it so beautifully. I'm really... uh... I'm really touched and I'm emotion, completely emotion, emotional by what you read. 
Yeah, it really was. Uh, it was one of the first days. And, you know, when you're walking and uh, you're still confused. And as I said, I've, although I've been to Chapel 3000, I think it was 4000. There probably been an error there because I was there for 10 years of my life and 365 days. But, uh, but, but in spite of all that, you know, the world has changed so much today is that there is no real time to to even sit and close your eyes and think about that there is some some force behind it may not be you don't have to call it god or you or jesus christ or rama or krishna or buddha or the muhammad but there is uh, there is a force there is something there uh, that is there uh, with you around you and guiding you and this is something that i was trying to come to terms with as well that i was walking this path which is uh, in inverted commas supposed to be a a Catholic path. Here I was, a Hindu. I've been to church. I've been to chapel. I tried try to go to church here. Uh, Swedes, you know, hardly ever go to church here. In fact, they only go on Christmas Eve, maybe. And uh, but they have the most beautiful churches in Sweden, and they always have a sailing ship hanging in the middle of the uh, when you walk up to the altar. And it's because of the beautiful coastline they have about Sweden and the the Vikings that went. They didn't go so far and wide quite far away. So on that path, when I was walking, uh, the first two, two days, I was, I was even more quiet, though I did speak to a few people, but I was still trying to come to terms with, with what I was doing. But never once did I ever stop and think that, no, this is something wrong, or this is a mistake I've made, or I'm wasting my time. This was something that was still working on my mind. Now, was this a religious path for me or just a spiritual one? Was it emotional? In the end, I think, I don't know how I ended that, but uh, right now I can't think of that toward the end. But for me, it was all of that. It was all of that because I loved all the churches. Every church I went to, even for even song in the evening, if I had an opportunity, I went in. I, was, I also walked with a lo very lovely Finnish lady Maria on the Meseta. And, um, okay, you didn't have to go and take the Holy Communion uh, or, you know, uh, drink the... But I used to sit at the back, and you know, in, in the church and, and enjoy all that and just look at, look at the power of this place. And I got so good vibrations from all that. So I think that first day when I was walking, um, I was slow, of course. You, you, your body's got to get used to walking every day, 20, 25 kilometers. So there was all that. There was pain. There was, I was emotional. I was still confused. I was uh, worried. And so all these thoughts were sort of coming around me. But in the end, it all smoothened out. Mm. And I felt at peace with myself. I realized, okay, you have your mobile phone and you can call. And I used to call my mother every day. She was very worried, in fact. She really was, what am I doing? And you're walking all this way. But otherwise, uh, I felt stronger at the end. I also felt depressed, as everybody does, and I felt low and dejected. Uh, but uh, I, those first two days were, again, a test. Like the inner voice, those first two days were... Uh, and there were so many... Peregrinos, this was the month of April, if I'm not mistaken. And there were, it was sort of peak time and people were all, there were lots of Peregrinos walking with me, behind me, ahead of me. But I was in my, with myself and 
just coming to terms with uh, with the Camino, with the path, and and with myself. In the very next paragraph in that uh, that essay, you wrote, "This is no game, no gold medal, no pat on my back. This is a path of true reflection. I follow my own." And 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 I wondered then, Vivek. And the next question I've written here in my script is, "What more does a writer, thinker, poet, and philosopher need to know?" Yeah, you're very right. Um, I think uh, when you write something, or when I write something, uh, in in this in this particular in this particular story of the Camino, I was. Uh, I got so deep into it, you know. I got so deep into it, and I, uh, I sort of forgot a lot of things, or I put them away uh, into the as an afterthought. You know, I was then just concentrating. I, I was, of course, there were. I was thinking about the family, my mother, my time in Simla. I was at sea, but all that sort of narrowed down, and then there was a certain beautiful stillness that came within within me and I was walking and I just kept walking and I thought I don't want this to ever end it's getting so beautiful and the rain and the and the fog and uh, a little bit of hail and some sleets of there was sleets of snow and but that was it didn't you know I had become so probably that's not the wrong that's the wrong word immune I didn't want to become immune I wanted to feel all the elements but uh there was this, I, I felt so different. I've never felt like this before in my entire life. You know, uh, Dan, I mean, I'd been at sea and I've stepped up uh, at midnight to write the night orders as a captain. And I look, go up onto the bridge and I look up into the sky and I see a zillion stars across the universe. I even see sometimes a shooting star and it's a, and the Atlantic Ocean. I'm talking about one night. It was flat. There was gla- It was a glassy glassy ocean and you look up and you say this is amazing and and I was and I felt I was blessed but when I walked in the Camino I thought about that about that time about that 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 ins- and there were thousands of nights where I went through that and thousands of raging storms and hurricanes and tropical revolving and low pressure systems but here I was in the path and I was I felt you know, I'm just myself here and I've left the whole world behind me. Is anybody really thinking about me? Uh, are they? I mean, he's on that path, he's walking and, they, and they're carrying on with their lives. And here I was doing it. And I said, you know, I told myself, you've really done it. You thought you could never do it. You're doing it. You've left behind everything. So is there really need of everything else than just walking and enjoying and feeling part of this? You are you're in a different world right now. Would you like to be here all the time? You wrote about the people you met, but you also wrote about someone that you met that you didn't expect to meet. And that person was you. What was that like? meeting you. What happened there, Dan, was is that you're always so busy in the world where you're meeting people with my job uh, where I was uh, first being a captain, then coming ashore, then meeting people. And I am a people's person. I like to meet people. I want to talk to people. But what happened here was is that I, 
looked and I spoke to myself, I looked at my inner self, and I tried to understand what exactly I really was. And, and in a way, I realized that I was nothing. I was, I was, I was no great shakes, honestly. I, I wasn't, uh, you know, the best skipper on, on the ship or the most cool dude, you know, walking down the street. Or I was just me. And that's what you are. You, you are just your bare self, your skin and bones. And that's what you're walking. And you've got liquid, of course, in your body, <laughs> water. But that's what you are. And I wasn't going to that extreme that I'm, that I'm becoming another Siddhartha Buddha. But on the other hand, I felt is that, hey, in the end, you have the knowledge, you have the education, you have the upbringing, but you're just a very simple human being. And that's what life should actually be. You are. I don't think you get time to reflect on all this anywhere else except on the Camino. This is at least, I've not walked on any other Camino. I've not walked on any pilgrimage in India. But the Camino gave me the, so much of, of depth, so much of peace that I want to keep going back. And I'm going to keep going back till as long as I can walk. And that's what it did to me. I, I, I went into my inner self and uh, I, I realized is that you're a very simple person, Vivek. You're just an actor. You know, everybody's just acting out there on the roads of the world. But when you come down to this Camino, that's it. You don't need anything more. You could keep walking. There was some, some German I, I met, and he'd started walking around Christmas from Dusseldorf or Frankfurt, and he was walking to Santiago in I don't know how many thousand kilometers. I met another young chap when I was making Burgos. He was coming the opposite way. So I told him, I said, hey, hombre, I, I think you've, <laughs> I didn't call him hombre. I think I called him amigo or hermano. Uh, uh, and I said, you know, I think you're, I think you're, you're taking the wrong path because Santiago is that way. He said, no, no, no. I've already walked to Santiago. So where are you going? He said, I'm walking to Jerusalem. I said, where? He said, I'm walking to Jerusalem. I don't want to ever stop walking. And this kid must have been about. He must have been in his thirties, Dan. How fantastic. Oh, my God. I could talk to you for hours and hours. You asked yourself a question that many of us ask ourselves and, and others, and that question is, why are you walking the Camino? Did you ever find the answer? Dan, I've not found the answers yet. It's, still, it's like that song from U2 or bonuses. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I found something. I found is that when I walk that path, whether it's from Portugal or whether it's the, I've only done the Frances. I've not done the Primitivo. I've not done the others. It's, I, I have a sense of, it's my place. I have to be there every year for whatever little time or whatever maximum time I can get. Why? Because it gives me it gives me a certain feeling of peace. It gives me a certain feeling of you know I, I I don't have to I don't have to think too much when I'm on that Camino, and that's what it gives me. It gives me a, a really good, good, beautiful feeling. But I still don't know, and I'm not sure if anyone's really found that because I hope uh, 
last year wasn't my last Camino. I want to keep walking. And maybe one day I'll come to know, but um, I'm not sure if I, if I wrote in my article is that when I was walking towards Samos, did you go through that forest which had, uh, it was all burnt out? Mm -hmm. Which year did you walk on that, on that path, uh, Dan? Where Did you pass the forest which was there? It must, must have been a forest fire because all the trees were all blackened. Do you it, remember that path? It, it wasn't burned out when I walked through. It was still pristine when I walked through. So which year did you walk through there? 2017, 2016 and 2017. So this must have happened uh, towards uh, the late two, 2017 because I walked in 2018 and I can send you photographs. I'm still, I've got a few, I'm sure, that the forest was burnt and it was all black. And uh, But there was a certain sadness when I was walking on that. And you know what happened? I must have been... You know, I, you can understand is that on the albergues, you can hardly sleep very deeply because everybody gets up at four or five in the morning and they start taking their plastic bags and taking out their stuff and zipping up their, their you know, mochilas and everything. And something happened on that path where I was, when I was walking, I think I was sleepwalking and I think I must have sleepwalked about 15 steps. I was tired and uh, and I was and I sleepwalked those 15 steps. And the next thing I knew was, I felt is that my whole body was, was, was swaying to, to the left and I was going to fall onto the ground. And I would have fallen pretty badly and broken my arm or, or my leg or something. But something, and I felt that there was a push. And suddenly I woke up and I was standing still on that road. I don't know what, whether this was an imagination but I'm, a, I'm very sure that there was some power or some powerful force that protected me on that path. I would have fallen down, I've broken my face, smashed my teeth, uh, something would have happened. But it was on that stretch. And this must have been at about um, um, around towards noontime, it was. It was dark. It was dark because the forest there is, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it was black and. Um, it was dark. Uh, the sun was not really overhead, and this this happened to me. And I still wonder what that was. Uh, though, well, rather than wondering, I, I I just felt there was something there that was protecting me. Whether it was my grandmother, whether it was my there was some other force that that kept me walking towards Samos. Spirituality is is an enormous part of life in. India, um, and you wrote in your piece in the Old Cottonians that, about a spirit walking with you on the Camino. Um, I, I wondered, do you still feel it now? No, I never felt it again after that. You know, I, I, I think about that a lot. In fact, uh, um, I know people have had many sort of experiences, but I, I really... Um, I wasn't going to propagate it in a big manner, you know. It just happened, and maybe it was uh, something that um, that my mind was sort of shut off. I was exhausted, but I was walking because I wanted to go to Samos, and it happened on that path. Um, mm. uh, I for sure I was sleepwalking for at least ten, fifteen steps. That's for sure. I was tired, and I should have actually sat down and rested. That was a mistake. Uh, 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 I made, I should have, but 
but I was completely alert. It's like, you know, when you're at sea and you've not had, and you're going through a storm or you're navigating through fog and you've got traffic and you're having this cup of coffee, but your eyes are so heavy that you want to sleep, but you can't, you're in command of the ship and, and you know, and you're just nudging off, but you've got something to support you. You've got uh, the, the forward part of the bridge wings or you, you can even sit on the, on the pilot chair, which is very dangerous because if you fall asleep, the ship might, of course, you've got other watch keepers, but on the Camino, I was by myself. And there was no other, there was no other pilgrim ahead of me or behind me. Very few people walk on that path. So this is where I, I got that. This was an experience, but yeah. I still yeah. think about what was it my tiredness or was it something that was there to protect me? Tell us about arriving in Santiago de Compostela. Oh, that was so beautiful. That was so beautiful. Uh, what was a little... Um, uh, it, there was a slight, uh, how would I say it, you know, the last hundred kilometers, as you know, because I was walking during Semana Santa, which is the Easter week in 2018. And uh, that from, from Saria, you get a lot of the Spaniards. Uh, they're beautiful people, but they want to walk the last hundred kilometers because, you know, then you can get your Compostela. And they all want to put it on their CV. Uh, because And I met a, a group of teachers, school teachers, ladies and gentlemen, and I was walking with them for a while. And they were also telling me about uh, how re religion is no longer uh, being enforced upon people or students in schools. And you, uh, you know, I'm not saying enforced, but it's not, it's not a subject that is being taught in many of the schools. But as we were walking and we, uh, I was so excited, I remember, because uh, uh I set a place called Azua, and there's a, it's called uh, Don Quixote. That was the albergue where I stayed in the night before. No, then after that, I went to another albergue. I actually walked only 11 kilometers uh, the next day, where I met Melanie again. And she came in, but she said she wanted to go and meet a German friend of hers who was coming probably from some other Camino. But I was so excited the next day. And when I got up in the morning, uh, I knew this is, I'm going to Santiago, it's finally happening, and I'm walking to Santiago. And I walked into the, and I, and I left that albergue, and I got onto the path, and I was walking in the path. It was early morning. Uh, and uh, when I say disheartening was because I, was, I got up early because a lot of the Spanish people, they, they get up late, but they're all in makeup, and, and you know, they've done all their hairdos, and they're walking. For them, it's like a holiday. It's not really... Um, you know, a pilgrimage or a, a, a walk. So I got out very early and uh, even before everybody else. And as I entered the forest, uh, I sort of heard a movement and there was this white cat that sort of appeared from the forest and came out of the forest, looked at me for a while and then went away. I managed to grab hold of my camera and I took a shot of her. Somehow, it, uh, the way she came out of the forest and she looked at me for a while and then she sort of, and I wondered what, what was this white cat doing in the forest? Anyway, I put that behind me and I was walking and I, and then again, I caught up uh, because this group of school teachers, I think they were living in a hotel or something. 
And uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that monument before you enter Santiago, where everybody goes and takes a photograph and there are... Montegozo. Montegozo? Yeah, Montegozo. And then they said, no, Vivek, we'd like you to walk, uh, you know, you should walk with us when we made this grand entry. And I was so excited because, you know, you pass the airport on the left side or the port side and then you keep walking in and then you... And then I was, in fact, booked that night at the Ministerio de los Menores, that big, huge castle-looking place on the left. And I was thinking, should I go there first? I said, no, 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 I've got to go to Santiago. And I saw the spires of the cathedral in the distance. And as I was walking, you know, I was getting, it was getting so emotional. And uh, when you enter the old city, you know, the, the outer peripheries, the modern city and the cars and all are buzzing around and, and I'm sure the local population sees thousands of us arriving every day, but there were so many, so many memories, so many, everything was just flashing by at me, you know, right across from, from the, literally from when I was, from the time I could remember three years old, four years old, five years, my time in Bishop Cotton, my time at sea, uh, living in Sweden, having seen the world, doing so many things now on the Camino, and walking this and having walked nonstop, not, not, you know, the whole emotional thing hit me so hard that I was literally limping in because my shoes, uh, I think it was my left foot. There was the, is it the, is it the metacarsal, which is that bone on the top that had been hurting me in the last three, four days, because I think I was walking so fast. But when you walk through the town and you enter the archway, of course, uh, when you enter it for the first time and you see those guys on the bagpipes and the playing, it's extremely emotional, though, of course, it's it's for it's for good effect, I must say. But when you walk through that and I came into the big courtyard and, you know, I looked at the cathedral and I just fell down on my knees, exhausted, and I burst into tears. I do, I do remember that. It was so emotional. And... Um, it was sometime in the afternoon. I think it was 2 o'clock or 2.30. But that was the most special day. I didn't want to sleep at all. I, I uh, Of course, I then uh, walked around the cathedral. I didn't go in for a while because they said that there's even song in the evening for the pilgrims. And um, then I went to the office to get my Compostela. And then uh, I, did I mention it there that at even song where they said so many pilgrims arrived and one pilgrim arrived from Sweden and India or something. Mm. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was the uh, the archbishop or the, or the or the priest who was conducting the ceremony said it. But that is really one of the most beautiful places that I've ever visited in my 120,000 ports and cities that I must have visited in my life. Uh, Santiago, uh, the Compostela and the area around the cathedral is so very special. And you left a donation at the hostel before you left. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Why? You know, you know, I was, ever since I was a boy, a young kid, I used to always get this, this crick in my neck when I used to sleep. And my grandmother, I used to, every time I got sleeping out, that is, once a month I could go to my grandmom in Simla. She lived in town. Still my, she's called my nani, N-A-N-I, nani. I say, nani, I don't know what to do. And so she said, there's this, there's this tree, you know, there's this tree that has got these little cotton buds that uh, 
and they are collected. And in the lower part, in the lower bazaar, you you can get this. Uh, we can go and buy this these cotton buds, and I'll make a pillow for you, and you'll feel wonderful. And sure enough, I had that pillow for years and years, and I think it's still lying in my in my flat in Delhi. And that was getting me worried is that now in this Camino, I didn't know what to expect, what sort of pillows I would get. Even here in Sweden, I'm, I keep having this problem about getting the ideal pillow, a feather pillow or not. So I got this. So, so from one of my uh, Canada down, I think it was Canada down, the feather pillow, which was a huge, nice pillow in Delhi, I split it in three parts and I told my local tailor, because in India you can get everything done, I said, you make a little pillow for me. I would I want to carry in the Camino. So that's what I did. I I carried that with me, but then I got used to, you know, I think the Camino hardens you up so much, Dan, that I got used to all the pillows. And this pillow was very special. And uh, in fact, there's another story about how I was interviewed in the in the newspaper because, but so it happened when that manager saw me and he, I said, I'm a sea captain. And he said, oh, you're a sea captain. Where from? I said, from India. And so, and I said, I, I, can I just get one room to myself because I'm so tired? He said, sure. And then he knocked on my door with a lot of young Pellegrinos. He's telling the Pellegrinos and he's telling them that don't disturb the captain, he's asleep. And I told him, Senor, I'm fine. <laughs> Who are, you know, he knocked on my door. And then he said, there's somebody come to see you downstairs. And I said, Who is this person? And he had the whole, um, you know, the local newspaper reporter and the cameras and everything to take my interview. So when I was leaving the next day, I was, I just didn't want to get into a cab. First, I thought I could walk to the airport, but then I thought, you know, that's going a bit too far. So I went to the reception and I gave this beautiful pillow to them and they loved it. I, I, I wonder who's got that pillow right now, but it really was a very beautiful, soft pillow. <laughs> you know, we, we've, run, we've run out of time, but I wanted to just... Tie it all up if I can, please, Vivek. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Uh, it was a pleasure, Dan. Lovely to hear you as well. Yeah. In, in, in the days in Santiago after you had finished, you met Gandhi or the man who poses as Gandhi in Santiago. Yeah. He handed you a note and it said, there is more to life than increasing its speed. And you wrote in your piece for the old Cotonians and Again, as I say to my listeners, I'll put a link to it on the on the podcast page. You said, I will re-emerge as another pedestrian in the maddening crowds of the world, but with the security and sanctity of always keeping the Camino, the path, the way to Santiago de Compostela with me, and I will smile. And as I said in my introduction, the American author and poet William Arthur Ward once said, a warm smile is universal language of kindness. So good luck, Vivek, spreading your joy. It's been a true delight to speak to you, and I look forward to meeting you one day, uh, and I'll be proud to say that I know you. Thank you so much, Dan. It was an absolute pleasure. I, I feel privileged or blessed, I would say blessed more than privileged, is that you took time out to contact me, uh, uh, young Melanie. She's a wonderful yeah. young lady. I hope to meet her sometime. She's uh, between jobs. Uh, but I do talk to her. She leaves a lot of voice messages and I respond. Uh, but thank you ever so much. It was an 
I'm so happy that you made contact with me and I could exchange and share. Uh, you've got so much uh, on your own plate. You've got so much you've met and you've interviewed and you've so many others. So uh, I do hope is that whatever we've spoken today uh, will go out as a message of peace, love. And uh, in Spanish, they say paz y amor means peace and love. So thank you very much, Dan. It was wonderful. Buen Camino. Buen Camino. Well, <laughs> what about that? Um, my guest this week, Vivek Bassan, an Indian sea captain who lives for half of the year in Sweden. He's also an etiquette trainer, a radio broadcaster, as well as an amateur actor, writer, poet, thinker and philosopher. And he's a pilgrim. I'm most grateful to our friend Melanie Shadelich for her help making the interview happen. Both Melanie and Vivek are perfect examples of what I began talking about at the top of the interview. Another quote from the American author and poet William Arthur Ward. Three keys to more abundant living. Caring about others, daring for others, and sharing with others. And both are testament to a second quote of Ward's. A warm smile is the universal language of kindness. Keep smiling, sharing, caring, and daring, pilgrims. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere.